The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an old friend and a prior guest. His name is David Rosenberg, better known as Rosie. I know Rosie for, I don't know, forever, it seems like. And I have been hectoring him to launch his own firm, really, since the days of the financial crisis when he was the chief economist at Merrill Lynch and really was... I think chafing at the strictures of a giant firm, I thought he would be better off with those harnesses removed and, you know, the old expression with horses is give them their head, meaning loosen up the reins and let them run where they want. Uh, And he's finally pulled the trigger and done that. Funny story, in the process of hectoring him to launch his own firm, we were chatting one day and he said, well, what would the name be? I'm like, that's obvious, Rosenberg Research. And I nagged him to go out and reserve that domain name, which being Dave, he never got around to doing it. So I grabbed it. I grabbed one to, I think it was at GoDaddy, I grabbed RosenbergResearch.com and forgot about it. You know, every year it just automatically renews. And one day he says to me, I've been thinking about going out on my own, but I can't use the name Rosenberg Research. Someone has that domain. And... (laughs) I said to him, really? Well, let me show you how to look it up and you could see who owns it. I show him the who is search feature and he goes through this whole process to identify who owns it. And he says, wait a second, that's you. And my response was, yeah, I know what a high functioning idiot you are and you would never get around to doing it. And someone else would have grabbed it. So I thought I would grab it for you. And lo and behold, RosenbergResearch.com is where his uh, website is. I don't know anybody with a greater facility for economic data, numbers. Dave can reel this information off the top of his head. What was the U3 unemployment rate in, you know, 1987 in February? He knows that. He, he's, he's a little bit of a rain man when it comes to that. Nobody understands this data better than him. Nobody understands how it interacts with the financial markets in as great detail as Dave. Uh, So rather than me babbling, with no further ado, my conversation with David Rosenberg. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is an old friend. His name is David Rosenberg. He is probably best known as the former chief economist for North America for investing giant Merrill Lynch. Uh, He is now running his own shop called Rosenberg Research, headquartered in Toronto. David Rosenberg, welcome to Masters in Business. It's great to be uh, on the show, Barry. Thanks for inviting me. Right. You can't say here anymore because no one knows where here is. So let's jump right into it based on that comment. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, prior to the lockdown, How did you see the state of the economy, let's call it fourth quarter 2019? Well, I had seen the situation before the calamity hit, as I've seen the entire cycle all along, which was a cycle that was very weak, very weak structural underpinnings, a decade of very little productivity growth, very little capital spending. In fact, I was saying most of last year, even though it wasn't a technical recession, Barry, uh, I was saying that there was certainly a recession in corporate profits. There was a recession in capital spending. There was a recession in non-residential construction. And really what was keeping the glue together was the consumer, which is 70% of GDP. And you just don't get a plain recession uh, in a real sense uh, without the consumer playing a part. But it was a very uneven economic performance. It continued into the opening months of this year. It's very interesting when I hear people say, well, you know, we'll just wait till the 
pandemic ends and we get the vaccine and uh, we'll revert back to what the economy looked like previously. But the economy, what it looked like previously, was very uneven, an economy where the corporate sector embarked on the most pronounced uh, debt for equity swap of all time. You know, when I went to school, you learned about how companies would issue debt to finance capital expenditure, uh, but the record debt issuance in the business sector went for stock buybacks. So really the whole bull market, when you think about it, um, was in uh, financial engineering. Uh, I called it the Potemkin bull market uh, in the economy and in the stock market. But actually what was very interesting to me was how we had one of the pronounced bull markets of all time in equities in the context of the weakest economic expansion. So did I see the pandemic hitting? No. Did I see that we were going to be shutting down 80% of the economy? The answer is no. I did always, in my mind, have fragility as part of my theme, and that even the smallest shock could send uh, the economy into a downturn. And I want to take you just back to that period in the final months of 2018, when, God forbid, all Jay Powell did was take the funds rate to 2.5%. and that 2.5%? Oh, my God. How can we get survive with rates that high? Well, that's the point that I think we have to come to grips with, is that, once again, we continue to fight these cycles of excessive debt with even more debt, and we're doing it now for a host of reasons, which are probably justified for the here and now. We'll have to clean up this mess at some point uh, in the future. But... I think that's the major point is what sort of cycle is it for all the bulls out there? What does it mean when you have a new central bank chairman, Jay Powell, telling you repeatedly when he took over the helm in early 2018, and he kept on saying over and over again, it is time to normalize interest rates. And normal to the Fed back then was 3% plus, 2.5% peak in the Fed funds rate was the lowest peak in the Fed funds rate since the 1930s. Um, That tells you a lot, that we could not even withstand a normalization of interest rates. And it's because the whole economy, despite the facade created by the stock market, the economy was actually still in an abnormal state um, coming out of the Great Recession, notwithstanding, you know, how well capitalized the banks were. The banks became well capitalized, but they also became regulated utilities. And so the debt boom didn't happen in the banking sector this time. It happened outside the confines of the banking sector, which was in public sector, but was in public issuance of corporate debt, which took it up to 50% of GDP, which we've never seen before. I want to stay with the idea that low interest rates are a key aspect of what's been going on. Is it safe to say that you believe the recovery off of the 09 lows are due in part to the engineering by the Federal Reserve and the unusually low rates, longer for lower? Is is that a fair statement? Well, I would actually say that the primary reasons for the recovery that we saw, you know, really stemmed from the dramatic increase that we saw in corporate debt issuance that went into stock buybacks, create this illusion of a fundamentally-based equity market rally and that you had some trickle-down impact in terms of equity wealth effects uh, on spending. On top of that, we had tremendous uh, fiscal stimulus through most of the period. Uh, It started in China. China continued to pump the system with fiscal stimulus uh, throughout the entire um, bull market in the global economy. Uh, And you had uh, the Obama Uh, fiscal stimulus in terms of the infrastructure spending early on, which took a while to percolate. Uh, And then, of course, the book ends with the uh, historic uh, tax cuts um, in 2018 by the uh, Trump administration. So we had that tremendous stimulus. I'm not, you know, the question becomes, I guess, you know, were low interest rates a cause of whatever economic growth that we saw? You know, it's... um, you know, I'm almost going to talk like a classic economist here. It's it's a one hand and other hand. It's really a two-sided argument because you could argue, well, low interest rates give you the impetus um, to issue debt. Um, certainly, low interest rates gives you the impetus uh, to go and buy risky assets because all we heard all cycle along was Tina. Uh, there is no alternative. So there's that aspect to it, too. It's called financial repression. You want to punish 
traditional risk-averse savers uh, to push them in the risk curve to get animal spirits up and to generate a recovery that way. And, and there's a good part of the reason why we had an expansion was because of that. But at the same time, uh, what do low interest rates as a price signal tell you? And interest rates are certainly something that you borrow at. It's something that you certainly will do your calculations on your dividend discount model, or you will do your uh, long-term uh, discounted earnings projections off uh, the discount rate. But the interest rate itself uh, isn't just a lending rate or a borrowing rate. It is a price signal just like in Japan or just like in Europe where we've had negative rates. What do these extremely low interest rates tell you about the economy? It tells you that we have a very weak long-term economic outlook. That's what it's telling you, these low interest rates. Dave, doesn't it also say that the creditworthiness of the United States is, is good and the bond market doesn't see any inflation anytime off in the future? I think that there's a good part of that. That uh, you got look, you've got various components of what makes up, say, the interest rate. There's uh, the term premium, which is related to your expectations of the Fed. There is inflation expectations, which you actually just mentioned. But there's also a real interest rate component, which tells you something about expectations of real economic growth. So really, there's all three. Now you can say to me, well, geez, you know, it's so great to have low inflation expectations to have low inflation. You know, look, back in the 1970s and 80s, Barry, we were dying for lower inflation. We couldn't wait to have lower inflation. And now, over the past number of years, we had just too much of lower inflation. But think of what lower inflation means. Lower inflation, ipso facto, means lower pricing power. And lower pricing power means that we have compressed margins. So how you kept the gravy train growing throughout this whole period. Remember last year, last year we had a bona fide earnings recession. There was no pricing power last year, and yet the stock market finished with a 30% run-up. And that had to do with the Powell pivot, and it had to do with the re-expansion of the Fed balance sheet starting in the fourth quarter. So let's talk about this lockdown, quarantine, pandemic situation. This is Memorial Day week. What is the state of the economy today? Well, uh, I'd say that we are right now still in the, or coming out of, call it the vertical down phase here, that we really were hit with a double whammy of a shock that affected the demand, because even before the lockdowns, the economy was starting to sputter because people were getting panicky over becoming uh, sick over the coronavirus. And then, so even before, call it the middle of March already, things are starting to really cool off. You can see that in the data through February and into March. And then, look, we've shut down most of the economy, and there's no precedent for this. There's no playbook for, I mean, there's a playbook for a pandemic, but you've got to go back at least a century. But a playbook for shutting down, really, when you think about it, the entire global economy for a period of time, well, that we haven't seen before. And especially an economy globally that's so intertwined So this was simultaneously a demand shock and a supply shock. So Dave, on that note of demand shock and supply shock simultaneously, give me a snapshot. What is the unemployment rate today? Forget the BLS data. What do you think the unemployment rate is? What do you think U.S. GDP is? And what do you think global GDP is? Well, I think that, you know, the unemployment rate right now, I think, is well over 20 percent if it's measured accurately and on its way soon uh, above 30 percent. And look, these are numbers that the St. Louis Fed was talking about uh, even a couple of months ago. And as far as GDP is concerned in the U.S., I think you're talking at least negative 40 percent for the second quarter. It could be worse than that. And I think that the, the entire world is probably pretty well very close to that. I mean, China's already come out of uh, its worst uh, detonation from this, and the world's second largest economy. So it could be just a timing thing that uh, the U.S. economy is contracting at a sharper rate than it is everywhere else just because China's come out. But, you know, you're talking about for this year, I think global GDP is going to be down uh, at least 10% for the year. Now, where we are right now, well, look, you're seeing a pulse in the economy now. So it's not surprising that we're probably going to get some sort of a bounce into the third quarter. You know, I think that we're going to be down 40 or 50 percent in the second quarter, and then wow. um, we're probably up maybe 20 percent or better in the third quarter. It's going to be a heck of a bounce, but, you know, it's like turning the light switch on. Um, you know, after you've turned uh, uh, the uh, all the electricity off in the house for a period of time. So 
I think it's going to end up being a square root uh, sort of a recovery. We're going to get some sort of a bounce. It's logical because we are reopening. There'll be some activity. But there is no return to normality until we either get a vaccine, which would be preferable, or some sort of effective treatment. <clears throat> because we can reopen the economy, but we're not going to get a perpetual increase in production and hiring and get the unemployment rate back down without demand. Uh, the demand has to show up. And that's the wild card, because we can reopen the economy. And I frankly don't believe that even if we get a second wave, we're not going back to locking things down again. That might happen right. sporadically and in some hot spots, but there's no more national lockdown. That's not going to happen. But for the economy to regain any verve whatsoever on a sustained basis, we need the demand. And, uh, you know, when you're asking me the question about, you know, where are we? There's no playbook for something like this. This isn't like waiting. Like in March of '09, we have the aha moment. Uh, they ring-fenced the banking system, recapitalized the banks. We could move on. You know, uh, in 2002, we, uh, we mop up all the excess capacity in the technology sector. Voila, we're off to a new bull market. Uh, when the RTC was created and cleaned up the mess left over by the savings and loan crisis and commercial real estate, well, there we had the event that we could point to that, okay, now we can start getting things back to normal. This is this is this has to do with a vaccine, basically. And so let's so, say we get uh, a vaccine by the end of the year. Let's say December there's a vaccine. How long beyond that does it take for us to regain the economic peak of 2019? Well, the hole that was created is so big that could still take at least a year. But if we got a vaccine, I mean, look, the stock market's telling you that right now. The stock market is telling you that they're expecting there's going to be an announcement on a vaccine by Labor Day that will be ready for broad distribution no later than early next year. Mm -hmm. So if we get a vaccine in the next 6 to 12 months, I mean, that's a game changer. That is a game changer. Basically, um, that will take us on the road back to normality. Not everything will return to normal because, you know, months of isolation and lockdown has had some impact on psychology and uh, and has had an impact on how we're going to approach our commercial and our personal lives going forward. There will be, I'm not going to even say scars, but there's going to be a secular change in behavior that comes out of this. Uh, be that as it may, a vaccine is a game changer because think of a vaccine. We can actually go to Yankee Stadium and watch a baseball game. We can actually open right. up the malls. We're not going to be fearful of getting the disease anymore and either getting sick or possibly dying, I mean, depending on the demography. But the vaccine is the game changer. Uh, so you, I'll tell you right now, Barry, I will turn. If I start getting the signs, now, everybody speaks to everybody. Everybody's got their group of infectious disease specialists they speak to. Uh, we watch Gottlieb and Fauci on TV. Um, you know, my sources, for whatever they're worth, are telling me that a vaccine is going to be coming. Uh, most of the people I speak to that are knowledgeable are, you know, there's no such thing as 100%, but a vaccine is coming, but probably not till the spring or summer of next year. And that's good news and bad news because it means we're going to have a vaccine, but it does mean that the big recovery is going to be delayed. And the longer it takes for that to happen, you know, unless the government continues with the fiscal spigots, the more bankruptcy and unemployment we're going to see along the way. So let me address something you brought up earlier about weakness in the 2019 economy, in the pre-pandemic economy. You know, if we look at the millennials, they're the biggest demographic group, at least since the baby boomers, and they're now entering their 30s. We just saw them start to increase household formation and housing demand was starting to tick up amongst that demographic. What does it mean for this group that was potentially starting a secular growth story for this pandemic? Is this just temporarily delay them a year or two or does this scar them as, as you implied earlier? Well, I don't think it, it scars them. It really comes down to where are they working? If these are skilled millennials, they'll be fine. I mean, I estimate that 10 million jobs have been eliminated permanently, okay? One thing that we figured Wait, out wait, wait. 10 million out of the 39 million who were laid off or 10 yeah. million across the whole economy? Well, both. I'm saying 10 million out of the call it roughly 40 million and 10 million out wow. of the 130 million workforce. The, I think that we've, we've lost 10 million jobs permanently, okay? In, mm -hmm. in these sectors of the economy that are not going to come back nearly as much. And there'll be, and that includes some of the offsets we'll see because some uh, Amazon-like uh, companies and industries will be hiring. Look at what we, did, what we discovered in this. It's great to have discovery, even though this was a horrible situation. 
that we we shut down 80% of the economy that was called a non-essential economy because they left the essential economy open. So here we figure out, well, that's very interesting that 80% of the economy isn't essential. Well, that's a revelation, isn't it? We're talking about, you know, in this whole 2009-2019 jobs boom, uh, the jobs boom that brought the unemployment rate to 3.5%. Has anybody ever bothered to see where these jobs were created? They were created in low-skilled, low-value-added consumer right. cyclical industries. Okay? We don't produce anything anymore. Now, maybe as we uh, onshore manufacturing in some areas, that'll come back. But look at the industrial production manufacturing. Look at the real export data. Uh, we become really a a society and an economy that was really geared towards entertainment and, and leisure and restaurants and retail. And so a lot of these jobs aren't coming back. But when you're talking about the millennials, they're going to benefit from one thing, which is that interest rates are going to remain at the floor for a longer period of time than they ever would have, where you have a deflationary gap to deal with. Uh, and Powell's already said that they are not going to raise interest rates as far as the eye can see. So if you have a job... Uh, if you're skilled, you have a job and you have job security, I mean, your financing costs are going to be close to zero to perpetuity. Uh, so I think actually in terms of housing, and that's going to be what type of housing and what's going to come out of this, and probably more positive for single family than it is, say, for condos or apartments, mm-hmm. I think the multiples take a hit because, once again, uh, we went through an experiment. What is it like to be isolated? and to have your mobility restricted in a condominium or an apartment against a single-family house with a backyard. And then, of course, I think there's going to be a lot of sensitivity about what sort of density, what sort of urban density do you want to be living in. So I think this is going to be very good for suburban dwelling, and I think that actually housing is going to come out of this uh, just fine. Uh, You know, as you're seeing already in some of the numbers, housing, and for the millennials that actually are in uh, the areas of the economy that are essential uh, or utility-like. And look, a lot of the millennials are in the technology industry, and as we've seen in the cycle, the tech stocks held up well because we found out that tech stocks are a lot like consumer staples. They are a necessity. So um, I think that they'll be just fine. Uh, job security so- is going to be the key, though, but they're going to have the low financing costs that's going to skate them on side. So, Dave, we were talking about policy decisions. I can't help but notice you're in Toronto. It seems that Canada did a much better job responding quickly to the COVID-19 pandemic than than we did down here in the U.S. What sort of impact will this delayed response of the U.S. have? What does it mean to the state of the economy today? And what does it mean to how quickly we'll be able to recover? Well, you know, it's it's a... And I don't even know if I look at it country against country because, um, I mean, there are some areas of the states that did better than, than others. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you can point to Ohio, say, and in Canada, British Columbia is actually way ahead of Ontario in terms of uh, bending the curve. So it's hard It's hard to say, you know, Canada is going to be, a, a, I think, a tougher slog here because uh, we're not going to, when it comes time to getting the vaccines, I'm sure that uh, they're going to be purchased first and foremost in the in the States than they're going to be in Canada. And I would just say in the Canadian situation, you know, here in Toronto, uh, I mean, we're still pretty well on lockdown mode. And, you know, look, we're doing a delicate balance here. You know, uh, do you reopen too early, get a second wave? But if you don't reopen, you destroy the economy. Uh, you know, here in Ontario, which is call it, you know, uh, over a third of the Canadian economy, you know, we're, we're, we're still locked down. There's, there's nothing here that's really opening yet. But it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Only history will be able to tell uh, whether or not uh, the U.S. reopened early. Only history will tell whether Canada waited too long to reopen. I mean, we don't really know. And I don't, I don't know, you know, if it, if it matters really from an economic standpoint, because we can point to Sweden People like to look at the Sweden example. Sweden had a much more laissez-faire attitude, um, much higher mortality rate um, yeah. than anywhere else, including its uh, European neighbors. And while people had greater freedom and they didn't really go through a lockdown outside of recommended social distancing, Sweden's economy is still poised to contract 10% this year, which is what they're saying all of Europe is going to contract. So there's, there's no evidence that even uh, not having your economy locked down 
that uh, it did a lot of good for your economy. And I'll just say why, because there's a supply aspect, and I said earlier, a demand aspect. Um, we had right. a supply and demand shock, but in Sweden, they didn't have a supply shock, but they had a pure demand shock, because if people are fearful and people are cautious, it doesn't matter whether they're, they're locked down or not, they're just right. not going to spend. Right. Quite fascinating. Dave, let's talk a little bit about launching uh, your own firm, and full disclosure, I've been begging you to do this for, I don't know, a decade? How long yeah. have you and I been talking about this? So so tell us, what made you decide to go independent? Well, you know, it's a, it's 100% true, Barry, and um, you, were, uh, you were a great inspiration. You still are. Uh, you know, look, uh, I left Merrill Lynch uh, in 2009 uh, to come back home from New York uh, the truth is, uh, I didn't really like my long absences from my young family. They were still in Toronto. And after a decade at Merrill, I achieved all the goals I'd set out anyways. Uh, you know, one of them uh, was, of course, this daily market note that's now called Breakfast with Dave uh, that I'd started back in 1998. And by the time I left Merrill Lynch in 2009, uh, much to my surprise, actually, I was told it was the most widely read piece of research uh, coming out of the Merrill system. So when I left Merrill, I had numerous folks, by the way, including you, uh, urging me uh, to start my own firm. Uh, and we both remember that. Uh, so the bottom line is that starting Rosenberg Research, it's been on my mind for many years. The reality, though, a decade ago, is I wanted to spend more time with my family. Uh, starting a new business uh, would have conflicted with that. Uh, and instead, I chose to take an offer from Gluskin Chef. Uh, they gave me the work-family balance that I was looking for. Uh, but the beauty about my relationship with my prior firm uh, was that we sold my research to the outside world, as in to non-Gluskin Chef clients, uh, whether they were conference calls, speeches, or my daily. Uh, we went to the paywall, and we split the proceeds, and it turned out to be a very nice business. So, I really already had an existing business that I just spun out at the beginning of the year. I guess you'd ask me about the timing and um, or the even the, the rationale. And, you know, I've long identified a shortage out there of truly high-quality, unbiased research and research that takes the economics to the financial markets and provides investors with a degree of clarity uh, that they're not going to get anywhere else. And this realization often makes me think that I probably should have done this earlier, um, but I'm grateful to have had made a decision to strike out on my own because it also comes down to better late than never. But <laughs> in that period when I was a buy-side economist, uh, I had the luxury of reading uh, everybody else, whether it was on Wall Street or Bay Street or Montgomery Street or Wilson Street, um, and I just found that it all sounded the same to me. And so many economists out there, I found over the past decade in particular, is I could read my former competitors' research, and I guess my current competitors' research, is that there's so many economists out there that are just too fearful of being wrong to make a call. And, and I guess that is uh, what has set me apart. I really just wanted to take the opportunity now at 59 years of age, uh, to produce research uh, that is unique. Uh, of course, it's provocative, uh, but also uncovers uh, things around the bend uh, that other people aren't looking at, because so much of economics is a commodity. And so the most important thing is to make the research uh, a non-commodity, to make it uh, unique and to make it differentiated. And that's always so been my ethos going back 30 years. Uh, but now I had the financial resources to do it myself uh, and, um, and, and the opportunity. And uh, it's been a phenomenal. We're only four months into this, and it's been great uh, to direct my own traffic uh, and to allocate the research initiatives as to where I think it's most appropriate for our client base. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Dave, what's been the biggest surprise of launching your own firm, both positive and negative? Well, look, for, you know, the the positive really has been, um, you know, the, the ability to, uh, you know, staff up, I would say, with the best macro team I've ever had under my wing. Uh, I know that's a big statement. That's 100% true. Uh, and so that's been a big part of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm staffed up with economists and strategists, and I've got a whole uh, marketing team. They're all in their 30s, so they... The most positive thing is they, they make me feel young again. Uh, and, um, you know, we are, uh, I'm learning a lot about being an entrepreneur, uh, and uh, that's a roller coaster ride. And uh, uh, as I was warned, it was going to be. Um, but it's, um, you know, but we were expanding. I mean, um, you know, when I left Gluskin Chef, uh, we had a subscription list globally. We're in 40 countries, by the way. Um, we had almost 2,000 subscribers. Uh, now we have north of 4,000 people uh, reading our material. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, that um, you know that we have that we have that reach. Uh, so that's probably the proudest accomplishment so, so far uh, has been uh, our ability uh, through almost little effort to uh, expand our readership, which means that we are um, we're hitting the right. Uh, the right uh, nerve points uh, with investors out there. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, looking at anything that's negative or anything that is, hasn't met my expectations, I mean, it's early days yet. Um, but so far, I'd have to say that all the check marks are in the plus column. How has the uh, pandemic impacted what you would normally be doing running a research shop? And And I know... You travel a lot, you speak at a lot of conferences, you visit a lot of clients. Now that we're, especially in Toronto, still in a lockdown situation, how has that impacted running a service business like yours? Mm. You know, that's a uh, that's a great point. Well, this is, again, is this part of really uh, assembling a great team. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, everybody knowing, you know, uh, you know, what they have to do and, and coming to a variety of consensus, and that comes not just to say when we're formulating a forecast, but what we're going to do regarding the business. Uh, you know, so we were early and very well prepared, and I've got to tip my hat to my entire team uh, because uh, we had a feeling that something like this might happen. We had a, uh, uh, we didn't know that you know there was going to be a situation where one evening the NBA says season's over and then it's lights out for the entire economy but we had a plan uh, and I got to thank my team for that uh, we had a plan as to what would happen if so we had a plan B and we were already set up uh, with our server and with our technology that if we had to work remotely uh, we could work remotely and so you know we had a really nice office in downtown uh, Toronto uh, right by the lake uh, in Brookfield Place really one of the prime a uh, commercial space in the city uh, and so that's where we were uh, and at any moment of time though we could all just do this from our from our home offices where I'm for example calling you right now and so it, it went out without a hitch like I was amazed on day one crossing my fingers when we were putting out our variety of research material nothing went out late there wasn't one glitch um, so look it's a matter of we're all working remotely uh, we're keeping in touch with each other in a variety of different ways. You know, I've had a bunch of speaking engagements uh, in uh, a lot of places, especially in the States, that uh, turned into doing it on Zoom uh, or just doing conference calls like I'm doing with you. I remember years ago doing a radio interview with you, uh, you know, at the uh, at the Bloomberg uh, office. And, you know, I wish I was there right now. So, you know, everything right now is just being done remotely. It's either done, you know, via 
uh, teleconference or via Zoom, just like everybody else. So uh, I'd have to say, though, look, I'll tell you right now, it's not like I don't enjoy traveling, but um, I don't miss going to airports. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I miss who the, does. I miss I miss the human uh, interaction. Yes, uh, I miss the applause. I miss the booze. I miss the cat calls. Uh, it's it's weird giving a speech that you know there's a thousand people out there, but uh, you know you, you can't hear them. You know you can't gauge their body language, and that's pretty weird. Um, but um, you know, so we're all learning uh, about this uh, this new phenomenon called work at home. Uh, but yeah. I can tell you that you know we're going to have a some sort of consensus once things uh, we get past the uh, eye of the storm and things in Toronto open up and uh, we'll come to some sort of consensus as to, you know, what we'll do with that office downtown. We'll probably have something rotational, I imagine, but things are not going back to the way that they were. That much is for sure. You know, our our mutual friend, John Malden, held his uh, strategic investor conference recently and I interviewed somebody for that event and you could see at the bottom of the screen how many attendees are present, and it just doesn't feel like you're talking to a room of 1,000 to 2,000 people. It's like a Zoom call, and it, it definitely is going to take a little getting uh, getting used to. Yeah, and uh, I think, frankly, that we're going to see a lot more of that, uh, and that's because I think that even if we start to go back towards something uh, that's quasi-normal even. Uh, I think the one thing that comes back uh, the, the longest is going to be air travel, especially business air travel and conferences and events. Um, so for people like me and you, this will be a, uh, a new normal for a lot longer. Hmm, to say the least. So I don't want to call this a V recovery in the stock market, we had one of the fastest collapses on record in the month of March, and here we are within spinning distance of all-time highs. What do you think of this uh, decline and rebound? I think that the first leg of the rebound was policy-driven with the Fed, with all the fiscal support. And you have to remember that in that period from mid-February to mid-March, there was uh, a lot about this coronavirus we didn't know about. And all of a sudden, we went from complacency in uh, February uh, to panic. Uh, I mean, people were comparing it to the Black Plague, and people were comparing it to the Spanish flu. Uh, of course, it's it's neither one of those, but we didn't know, it, was it going to mutate? Um, you know, what was the mortality rate going to be? And then you looked at all these official projections, which, of course, proved to be wrong. Uh, it created a tremendous amount of fear. And then when we had the lockdown... You know, it was really a frightening experience. You know, it's interesting that the stock market as a whole didn't even go down 40% uh, during that period. Um, and, uh, you know, we went down 50% in the last uh, cycle. We went down 40% in the tech wreck. This was vertical down, but there were a lot of sectors of the market that held in reasonably well. Parts of healthcare, you know, biotech, big tech, and, you know, consumer staples. And then, of course, you had all the uh, the deep cyclicals, uh, they were in a deep dive, but they had such a small share of the stock market uh, that it didn't really register with a complete collapse. So what people talked about, well, it was the biggest decline in the stock market uh, in a short period of time. Um, there were some sectors that hung in really well, and then there were other ones that just detonated. And, of course, uh, um, they've taken the longest to sort of come back. And you've got this rotation right now happening towards these more value cyclical trades because people have gotten excited about the reopenings and people are getting excited uh, about uh, a treatment or vaccine coming to the fore, you know, by the end of the summer. That's what the market's got priced in right now. So, look, I would just say, and as I said earlier, you're always trying to identify, you know, what is the inflection point? And the inflection point is always built initially off of expectations. Will the expectations come to fruition or not? If you remember, we thought the market bottomed in October of 2008 after the Lehman collapse because we thought we had TARP-1 and that was going to be enough. And the market rallied and then rolled over 30% to the lows, and it didn't hit the lows until TARP-2, uh, which we then deemed, well, that was enough. Ring fence, the banking system recapitalized, and we drove on. Uh, this time around, it's really, Barry, it's all about um, the vaccine, and uh, if you take a look at the market, it's a very interesting situation that we have on our hands that, uh, you know, whenever we've had 
I'd say since the middle of April, we've had four days when there was some exciting major market-moving news over a vaccine or treatment. Uh, you know, we had uh, a couple of them related to Gilead. We had the Moderna. We had Novavax. Uh, and um, every time we get um, something major, uh, whether it's a first trial or a second trial, the market just rips. And in fact, in the four days that we had something that was announced, an announcement effect, uh, the Dow in those four days collectively, and this is just since the middle of April, uh, the collective rally was almost 3,000 points in the Dow, including the 500-point rally we saw yesterday. Um, so actually, if it wasn't for these announcement effects, the Dow would be below 24,000 today instead of, call it, 25,000 plus. So mm -hmm. the markets are giving us a lot of information here, and it's called uh, hope and it's called faith. But, you know, the, the stock market is a beast that is often influenced by expectations and by sentiment, and that's what animal spirits are all about. It doesn't have to be really anything more fundamental than that. So clearly biotech is leading, the and pharmaceutical and hopes on a vaccine or a treatment, is what's giving the animal spirits some hope. What do you think about more discretionary sectors, and what is oil and the energy sector telling you about the future path of the economy? The energy sector is only telling me about uh, the discipline at OPEC and OPEC Plus. So there's nothing really telling me much about demand as far as the oil price is concerned. This was really all came after the emergency meeting and the draconian production cuts. And by the way, not just uh, among uh, OPEC and Russia, but also the shale guys, uh, unlike 2016, mm -hmm have also cut production dramatically. So um, that just tells me there's more pain in the energy sector from a real economic standpoint. Really? Uh, but obviously, we needed to have a supply shock in this direction to revive the oil price. What about some other commodities? What do you think of gold, which has held up really, really well and is close to decade-long highs? Well, I, I'd say that that's one of my key investment ideas uh, for this current state of the world. I think that, look, gold... Gold is a very good hedge against the instability that the extremes of deflation and inflation bring. Uh, if there is deflation, and there most certainly is, interest rates are going to remain low uh, or go negative. And that's going to make the opportunity cost of holding gold basically nil. Historic mm -hmm. inverse correlation between real interest rates will, will go more negative and the price of gold, and it's not going to be a straight line up, um, but the secular bull market that I really began six years ago with the basing formation is going to be intact. Now, if there is inflation, gold, as we all know, uh, will do very well as a store of value. And we've got to view all this uh, central bank alchemy has led to, I think, these ever increasingly unstable markets. I mean, the volatility uh, has been dramatic in both directions. People only, only think about volatility when the market's going down, but it's been a roller coaster ride really for the past couple of months. And I think gold will work well against as a hedge in an increasingly unstable financial market environment. So I'd say, Barry, it's actually at this point my highest conviction call. And I'd add that if for any other reason that you have to look at gold today as a currency that is no government's liability. Uh, you look mm -hmm. at gold. Why has gold always been viewed as something that you want to be measured against? It's because the production growth of gold runs at a pretty reliable and constant 1% annual rate. Look at the production of money right now. Look at M1, M2. Look at all the money numbers. In fact, globally, they're running at over a 30% annual rate. So as I look at it as an economist, at the relative supply fundamentals, now and in the future, between gold production and the production of fiat money, I think the conclusion is rather obvious. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. You mentioned technology earlier, which leads me to the question about the dominance of growth over value. Is value investing dead? And if not, what's going to eventually turn it around for value investing? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you get a few days of value stocks, you know, recovering, you know, from their uh, lows. And there's been a dramatic increase recently in the airline stocks and 
the casino stocks, the hotel stocks, because the economy has uh, the economy has reopened, and there's a view that people are going to be spending more money, and as it reopens, the value stocks are going to do better because uh, the growth stocks are so populated with these uh, work at home uh, thematics. The answer is that no, I'm not a believer that this value trade is going to have a lot of legs. It's really being premised on uh, the reopening of the economy, but also on the view that there'll be a vaccine and that people will start to spend again, and they'll start to spend on these value areas in consumer civil services that were so downbeat. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I think that I want to be focused on, as I said earlier, things that people are going to need, not what they want. People don't need restaurants. Of course, there'll be an initial rush because we've been in our homes and we've been locked up. There'll be an initial rush. But I found it very interesting. And again, because economics at its root is a behavioral science. And I, I found actually that behaviorally speaking, Look at what consumers have spent their money on in the past two months of the lockdown besides canned food, toilet paper, and booze, garden supplies, bread makers, jigsaw puzzles, and anything related to wiring up your home to become your new office. Dave, you have clients in over 40 countries. Your firm is an international firm. We've seen international stocks lagging U.S. stocks, and we've seen the international economy lagging the U.S., is that a permanent change or is that something that is cyclical and eventually the rest of the world catches up to the United States? Well, I'm not so sure about the premise, Barry, that um, that the rest of the world has done worse than the U.S. from an economic standpoint because China uh, China's already recovering uh, and we're going to see second quarter numbers in the U.S. that are going to be negative 40, negative 50 percent. Uh, the eye of the storm in China was back in the first quarter. And you think of the U.S. reaction, in some sense, they were quite a bit later than other countries. I mean, countries like Germany uh, and even Japan ultimately had much better testing and tracing procedures. And it wouldn't surprise me if they probably come back um, ahead of the U.S. does. But mm-hmm. look, at it's uh, we're just talking, when you're talking minus 30, minus 40, minus 50, you know, what's a handful of, of basis points? But the U.S. stock market is not the U.S. economy. And uh, the U.S. stock market is chock full of the sort of stocks that you probably want to own in this environment, where you're talking about defensive growth. You know, um, how many other countries in the world have like a Microsoft, which is defensive growth? Amazon is a U.S. company. Well, Amazon, as we found out, if we didn't discover earlier, Amazon has become a utility. How many other stock markets in the world have have a company that big that has become an essential? I guess you could argue that Google has become a utility. So I say that when you look at these parts of the market, you look at healthcare, you look at big tech, but big tech that have taken on utility characteristics, which is something that we have to take an appreciation of during the past couple of months. And we focus on consumer staples and brand names. Well, it's not a surprise to me that the U.S. stock market in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so that is the market, if you are bullish on stocks, they'd want to... Focus on the most. Quite, quite interesting. All right, I know I only have you for a few moments left, so let's jump to our speed round. These are our five lockdown questions we ask all our guests, and let's bang through them as quickly as we can. Speaking of essential utilities, what are you watching on Netflix and Amazon Prime? What are you streaming these days? Well, I really liked The Last Dance. I really liked um, Unorthodox and. Um, and Ozarks, I thought, was actually, um, um, you know, uh, not quite up here with Breaking Bad, but it was uh, it kept me engaged. You know, at some point, though, I think maybe we should all just basically, you know, pick up a couple of books and not gaze the TV set uh, so much. So let me jump right to that question. What are your favorite books? What are you reading now under lockdown? And what are some of your favorite all-time books? My favorite book, as far as, uh, you know, this business is concerned, was the classic that was written by uh, Charles Kinderberger, Mannix, Panics, and and Crashes. And I think everybody should be reading that. The one that uh, I was just getting through was the the classic by Robert Gordon, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And uh, 
I'm going to be getting on to uh, the latest uh, biography that was penned by Henry Kissinger. So uh, those are the ones mm. that are on the shelf right now. Fascinating. What sort of advice would you give someone who was a recent college graduate who is thinking about going into economics as a profession? Yeah, I'd say uh, that uh, you want to make sure that as you become quantitatively proficient in this profession, and that's where a lot of the emphasis is, uh, I would say spend as much time as possible learning about history. Take as many economic and financial and market history courses as you possibly can alongside your statistics and your econometrics. Because I found over the past three decades, uh, looking at these recurring patterns in the markets, in the economy, understanding that these extremes of fear and greed uh, have always been with us and how they influence behavior, that I think that you want to constantly focus on history. Read as much about history as you possibly can. Quite fascinating. And our final question, what do you know about the world of economics today and econometrics today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were a, a, a green, young economist? Well, you know, I wish there was a way that we can actually forecast our way through an event that we've never seen before. You know, that would be something brand spanking new because usually we're running regressions that are based on a sample size of things that actually have happened before. So wouldn't it be nice to actually have the sample size of one, which is today's pandemic and the reaction, uh, as to actually take that and model something into the future? Because I'd say that right now, the confidence intervals around any forecast are as wide as I've ever seen. And in 35 years in this business, I've seen a lot. Thanks, Dave, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David Rosenberg. He is the founder of Rosenberg Research. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see all of the previous 300-plus conversations we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.